Did you know onions could walk? Learn about that and heritage seeds today on Living Heritage. Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Dan Rubin. Since arriving in Newfoundland 15 years ago, Dan has been deeply involved in local history and heritage as the founding chair of the Pooch Cove Heritage Society. He was lead author and editor of the book Pooch Cove, Our Home by the Sea, which received the Manning Award for Community History in 2016. But Dan is also a groundbreaking gardener and seedsman. He is here today to talk about how he is helping preserve and extend local traditions of food production in his community and across our province while working as the manager of perfectly perennial herbs and seeds. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dale. It's great to, to be uh, talking to you. It's great to be here kind of at the end of winter and thinking about the garden. And uh, Oh, today ready. it's finally, I, I walked outside my house, I looked at the thermometer and it said eight degrees and I went, Oh. <laughs> it kind of it starts to feel almost like spring. Now I know we're not quite there yet, and our and our frost-free date is you know ridiculously late. Yes, in the we have a short-growing season here for sure. That's yeah. one of the challenges. Yeah. So we're we're talking today all about kind of heritage plants and and heirloom heirloom plants and that kind of thing. So, so tell me, how did you get how did you get started in this realm? Well, it's quite interesting because uh, I never thought when I moved here to Newfoundland 15 years ago that I would be so involved in gardening. But now when I look back, I realized, well, my dad was a gardener. My dad was an amazing visual artist, and I grew up in California. And I have a picture of me sitting on his shoulders out in the corn in our backyard on the hillside in, in East L.A. And I've always gardened. It just has come naturally because I grew up with it. Uh, but uh, most of the last 30 years, what I've been doing professionally is I've been a curriculum developer and a teacher and at times a, a school principal. I did spend a part of that time working with native elders on the west coast of Canada on heritage projects focused on language and culture. And prior to moving here, I had researched and written a book about two friends who were boat builders. Uh, the book was called Salt on the Wind, The Sailing Life of Alan and Sherry Farrell. And these are two wonderful people whom I was very lucky to know, who in 50 years together on the west coast of BC built 46 wooden boats by hand wow. yeah. without power tools, Amazing. mainly from beach combed and pit sawn lumber, sailed the four largest to Fiji and Hawaii and California and Mexico, homesteaded three times and became some of the most gracious, gentle elders in the the West Coast community, and and I was lucky enough to know them and own a boat they had built and sail on it, and then write their biography. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, how did that lead into kind of an interest in in gardening and agriculture? Well, I did my original degree in biology, so I've always been interested in 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 growing things in natural systems. Mm-hmm. And I had always, out in BC, garden with raised beds. So these are boxes that you fill with the best dirt available and continually build up the soil in the box. And so when I moved here, the way it worked was that my wife, Susan, and I were staying with her mom in Airport Heights. And one Saturday, we took a drive, and we went out the Torbay Highway just on an excursion, you know, just on a drive. And we get to this little road just past the town hall in Pooch Cove, where I now live, and there was a sign pointing out the water and said, 
house for sale. So I turn and she goes, well, what are you doing? You said you'd never live in Newfoundland. And I said, look, we've been looking all over the Maritimes. I was a school principal in New Brunswick at the time. It might be a house. It might be on the water. We might be able to afford it. Yeah. So we turn and we go up and there's this lovely little cream colored house and a beautiful yard with fruit trees. So immediately I'm writing down the realtor's number and I call her this that evening. She said, would you like to see the house? I can show it to you tomorrow. So Sunday, we're back there, walk out into the yard and meet Harry, this tall, really salt of the earth guy, Harry Langmead, right, and his yeah. wife Ethel. And immediately I thought, now I've met another amazing, beautiful couple of elders, right? And he's showing me his potatoes in his garden, and I stand up, and all of a sudden, right there, right there in front of me, a humpback whale comes up and goes, <laughs> and goes down. And the real estate goes, sold. Like <laughs> and, and we're both like totally, like our mouths are hanging open. So I'm, we made an offer on the, on the house that night. It was accepted the next day. I was sitting in the ship pub with my friends from Atlantic Union who had adopted me into their band, and suddenly it just went click. So now... I live in Puchko. And, and you've been there for how many years now? 15. 15 years. Yeah, it goes by really quick, you know. I, oh, yeah. 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 It's it's very odd to me that 15 years. So anyway, there was an open plan garden where he grew the standard root vegetables that Newfoundlanders, you know, want for their jigs dinner. He sure, grew yeah. potatoes and cabbage and turnips and carrot. And I started turning in to raise beds. And that was easy because they were tearing down the Catholic school and I got the beams from the roof of the gym, 12 foot long, 12 inches wide, perfect. Mm -hmm. So I built these boxes roughly seven feet long and three feet wide, and I filled them with compost, and I screened out the rocks, the gravel, and made paths, and discovered that when you do that here, you actually stretch your growing season by another month. Oh, okay. Uh, at least two weeks in the spring and almost a month in the fall. And the reasons are that the soil warms earlier when it's raised up above the ground Right in the boxes. It drains, and then you can build up the soil. You can add peat and compost and manure and seaweed, and suddenly you have this really great growing mix. And so by the second or third year, as we did this, we were doing some planting, some transplanting. I discovered these things. Right. And your listeners can't, can't see this, but I'm holding a little tiny onion bulb. I'm holding a little tiny onion bulb in my hand with little roots picking out that it's been growing all winter long and greens out of the top. And this is in, in our place where we live now called a walking onion. Right. So now I have to pick this up and smell it because it's, it's sitting here and I can smell the... Oniony. The onion is such yeah. a... It's such a great, great smell. Yeah. Um, and so for people who don't know what a walking onion is, it sounds very mysterious. Uh, yeah. What is it? It's uh, known more widely as an Egyptian onion. And they're called walking onions because what you eat on these onions are the green stalks, which grow, are the leaves rather, which grow a foot and a half tall, an inch wide, and are sweet and succulent. They're great, whether in casseroles or salads. You can chop them up, put in your, them in your freezer and freeze them. They have many uses, and it's the greens that you eat. But in the fall, each plant puts up a thick stalk, and at the top of it, these little bulbs, these little bulblets grow. And when the stalk dries out, the stalk topples over, and the plant so to speak, walks to another location. It moves to a new location. Yeah, so year by year, it reseeds itself until you got the pa this patch of onions. Yeah, 
And so what happened to me is I had a dozen of these plants around the edge of the yard. Because they're an heirloom plant in Pooch Cove, I moved to a bed and suddenly I did a little... little and suddenly I had this little forest of onions and in the fall when the bulblets came up, I harvested them and I was holding a basket and I thought, what the heck do I do with these? <laughs> and I tried a test market through the local nurseries and people recognized them as a plant they remembered and I sold out the first year. Right. So I turned to my son, my poor son, who gets uh, brought along for the Sucked ride. Into your projects. He yeah. was eight years old at the time. <laughs> and I said, we're going to start a seed company. What do you think we should call it? And he came up with the name. And we are Perfectly Perennial Herbs and Seeds. And you can find us online at www.perfectlyperennial.ca. And uh, since then, the next uh, it's continued to expand. The next discovery was that I went back to BC, where I had been living, uh, basically to to organize selling the house there now that we were full-time in Newfoundland and I brought back some seeds for a type of kale that was a favorite there that everybody that I knew was growing and this was a particular kind of flat-leafed red Russian kale and I thought well I really like the taste of this stuff so maybe it'll grow out in Newfoundland and I discovered that it will not only grow here but it'll last all through the winter hmm. in the spring it'll look like I call it dinosaur turds and like this stalk and these draggly leaves. But if you leave it there, it sprouts out again and you get an entire second season of beautiful, delicious, sweet kale. Hmm. So now we grow that. We harvest the seeds. We call it our West Coast kale because it came from the West Coast of Canada. And that's the favorite seed that, that we sell now. So it's a, bi it's a biennial plant? It's then? a biennial okay. kale. Interesting. And uh, it's prolific, and you almost don't have to plant it after the second year because it reseeds prolifically. So again, like the walking onions, it's a plant that we're now realizing is part of a suite of plants which can offer food security right. to communities in Newfoundland and Labrador and throughout our Atlantic Canadian region. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, the story is that uh, outport communities used to be almost entirely self-sufficient, except for a few things like sugar or flour or oil. I mean, Puchkov used to ship hundreds of pounds of vegetables into St. John's. The census that we found when we were doing the book Puchkov, Our Home by the Sea, verifies this yeah I think there's sometimes this um, misunderstanding about uh, growing things in Newfoundland people think oh you can't grow anything in Newfoundland it's it's you know the climate's too bad the there is too rocky. a belief there there's, is a there's myth a belief there and it is a myth because as you said um, people were always growing things they they yes. they, they needed to they, there were there were no places where they could go and buy fresh vegetables people had to had to grow their things themselves and one so, of the, and so we uh, have these things yeah. like these these walking onions. Mm -hmm. that, uh, so you, you, how how long have have some of these plants been in in Newfoundland? The walking onions in our community certainly a hundred years. Hundred years. Yeah. Uh, there are other plants that you would certainly expect to have been here that people raise traditionally: cabbage and potato and turnip, and uh, gr certain kinds of greens. But to my surprise, there's others that are also uh, equally. Heritage. I mean, a heritage, the definition is a heritage plant is something that's grown in a particular location for more than 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered through uh, an interview that I did with a local uh, man who grew up, grew up in a farming family that Jerusalem artichokes 
which are a type of sunflower with an edible root, were also a heritage plant. I would never have expected yeah, that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, too. no. And it was uh, it, those plants were brought by the man's aunt to Puchko from another outport, and they came originally from Britain. So what we've been doing at our seat has gone in a, a series of strange discoveries, growing out of a, a backyard garden into a seed garden, now into a neighborhood garden. We actually incorporated a nonprofit with three other neighboring families and got funding to create what is now 60 raised beds, 200 foot square foot greenhouses, a traditional root cellar, which we are, have restored, and uh, a 1,000 square foot of row crops in a field. And all of that is communally operated by four households. Mm-hmm. And the inspiration for that came from the man who's now the coordinator of the farmer's market, from Danilo, who uh, had come up here from Chile to work in a greenhouse and then got bored. And he and his friends, uh, compatriots Luis and Kati, came to our site and said, you know, if you've got some neighbors, you could grow way more food. (laughs) And we went, well, yeah, can you help us solve our wind problem? Because wind shear is a big issue. Right. And they did. They helped us build wind fencing, yeah. uh, which doesn't have to be solid. Even netting or, or stakes in the ground will tumble the wind. Right. And suddenly we had this uh, neighborhood garden. And we went from like zero to 60 in one year. In one year, we built, in one day, we built 32 raised beds. <laughs> the next day, we filled them with compost soil from Carews and Portugal Cove. Uh, and with $267 that was left over in our funding, at the end of the first year, we built a greenhouse. That's what it cost right. for yeah. our second greenhouse. Now, you, you yeah. mentioned, you made, a, you made a, a reference there to root cellars. Yeah. And this is something that I wanted to have a chat with you uh, about as well. I, I, root cellars are something that I'm fascinated by because mm-hmm. it really was a strong tradition in Newfoundland to have to have root cellars. There's a long history of that here. We know when when the when the John Guy settlement started in 1610 that one of the first things they built was a cellar. That's actually what they lived in the, the first year they were here. And then so cellars and places to store things have have a long history here. But then we kind of moved away from root cellars. And, well, now, and now we're starting to recognize that those old knowledges have, have value. So I want you to tell me a little bit about the root cellar projects that you've been involved with. Well, it's very interesting because, uh, first of all, uh, as part of the Pooch Cove Heritage Society, a group that I helped found or founded, uh, uh, which I'm no longer directly associated with, uh, some six months or so ago, um, uh, Roy and I were traveling around the community photographing root cellars for a calendar and I had no idea there were so many so in Puch Cove yeah. and some of them are built into hillsides one in fact is built in a backyard with mounds of earth over it like a hut with this concrete front and a door we had a, a hole in the ground at our site that we th- that was full of a pile of rocks and we thought well we're gonna have to dig this out we're going to have to find someone who knows how to do dry stone, and we're going to have to recreate a root cellar. Because the reason root cellars are so important is that if you grow 320 pounds of potatoes, as we did last year, you've got to have somewhere to put them. Sure. And they, don't, they will keep in a barn at Elka's, but they won't keep very well. But if you put them down in the ground where they're insulated from the worst of the cold, uh, we had potatoes last night with our veggie burgers from the root cellar right yeah and they were 
beautiful. So food will keep all winter that way. And, And where we were lucky was a recent property acquisition by one of our neighbors and partners gave us a fully working root cellar in perfect condition. So we, we inherited one and didn't have to restore the, the hole in the ground that we thought we'd have to work on. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so what, what is the future then of, of kind of root cellar technology, do you think? Well, I, I think that it's such a simple and elegant design that even if you digged, dug a hole in the ground and put a Tupperware bin into it and a cover and covered that with some form of insulation, you've got a root cellar on the smallest scale. But here's what's interesting is that uh, at our site, we're working on a new project and we're call it the, calling it the earth sheltered greenhouse design. So this is like a root cellar in it's it's built down into a ground into a hillside but it's not a root cellar it's a greenhouse so i've been working for the fall term with two engineering students uh here at memorial university who have collaboratively worked on the design that we now have and we have a 30 page detailed report for a structure 12 foot by 20 foot with its back a concrete cast wall sunk into a hillside and two feet down into the earth with a concrete foundation. Sidewalls that are standard framing, but with insulation. A roof that is a metal roof to act as a water catchment, two by six framing, insulated. And the front wall, of course, south facing so that the sunlight pours in polycarbonate plastic, which is relatively uh, resilient and inexpensive. The total cost, to my surprise, because I thought we were just going to stretch the growing season. No, the total cost for the structure is $3,500 in materials. Mm -hmm. And the cost of heating it to 10 degrees year-round, which means you can grow figs, citrus, sweet potatoes, lemongrass in Newfoundland, (laughs) the total heating cost for the year in electricity will be, by the engineer's calculations, $350. So that's a root cellar greenhouse, and it has the potential to change the face of local food production. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Isn't that? Yeah. So what we're doing now, uh, and I'm working still with the Faculty of Engineering, but also with people at the Botanical Gardens and the School of Medicine and the Harris Centers, we'll be developing a team to see this as the potential base for social entrepreneurship with the idea that half a dozen young people and one very knowledgeable old timer <laughs> could get together in Mary's town or on the Northern Peninsula or somewhere, find a nice hillside, each put in $1,000, have enough money to build a structure, equip it and plant it, and create part-time employment and restore food security yeah. in their community. Just I, I never expected this. Start a Newfoundland fig and lemongrass business. Yeah. Well, you you <laughs> mentioned that there is this uh, belief, there is this myth that you can't grow things in Newfoundland. Here's what we grow: outdoors, we grow lettuce, and kale, and chard, and spinach, and carrots, and five kinds of heritage beans, and of course blueberries, and also hascaps. and we grow Jerusalem artichokes, and we grow onions, and we grow garlic and we grow grapes, and we grow peaches, and we grow corn, and we grow globe artichokes, all outdoors. Hmm. And these are not like the kale. It won't last through the winter, of course. You have to replant them. So we start our seeds indoors under lights. We move them out to the greenhouse and harden them out. And then that gives us a month 
earlier planting and then they go out into the raised beds and many of the raised beds have little houses over them covered with rolls of plastic or whatever and each time you add a layer like that whether it be glass or plastic or even garden fabric you move yourself one zone south and we also have two greenhouses so if I plant something in the greenhouse cover it with lean some windows cover it with plastic I'm in upstate New York right climate wise wise, yeah yeah Yeah. so there's enormous potential for using that and I'm I'm also very excited about the experiments that people are doing including here at Memorial with uh, aquaponics and hydroponics but uh, there's an entire unexplored potential for growing in soil outdoors and indoors still to be explored here Mm. you mentioned uh, Hascap yeah, um, and what's what's your what's your experience with Hascap been so far? Um, they we planted half a dozen of those as part of a funded project last year, and then somebody who knew them better than I I do warned me that they get really big. So we've actually transplanted them outside our garden per se to act as a hedge. Uh, the the berries don't taste like blueberries; they're actually a con- completely different species. Um, uh, but they're quite tasty. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like lozenge-shaped little purpley things. So we're quite hopeful about them. Yeah, and for people who aren't familiar with that, it's a it's a, a Siberian plant, I think. And yeah, then, and then one of the Western, it's a relatively new discovery. <clears throat> one of the Western universities in Canada had had kind of done some work. I think University of Saskatchewan, maybe mm-hmm. or, or whatnot, had done some work to kind of. There's uh, a lot of research and, being done on northern adapted fruits. When we got this funding that I referred to last year uh, from Tree Canada we were able to really uh, start experimenting and we brought in apples and plums and peaches and pears uh, all northern adapted uh, Cornhill nursery in in uh, New Brunswick is doing a lot of experimentation with this uh, there's several nurseries in uh, in Ontario but also out at the University of Saskatchewan they developed a form of cherry tree that isn't a tree it's a bush okay. bush cherry so we have six of those three different varieties mm-hmm. ready to go into the the ground but before we we started today you were telling me a story about potatoes yes and uh, and this the idea that sometimes our, our heirloom uh, plants would be better suited uh, for things here than some of the more uh, modern introduced varieties. Well, there was this wonderful man, Ken Proudfoot, who for years and years was doing research on potatoes uh, at the Federal Agricultural Research Station here in St. John's. Uh, Mount Pearl, I guess it on actually Brookfield, is. On, on Brookfield, Brookfield Road. Road. Yeah. And he, uh, by crossing potatoes and, and breeding them, came up with dozens of varieties very well suited to our environment here and every year the botanical gardens uh has a potato festival but my experience with this was that one year and this was about mm, three years ago we got some potato seed from the co-op here and this is seed that's been raised it's certified scab free and all that and we planted it and alongside it we planted three types of heirloom potatoes of the varieties that ken proudfoot had developed the blues known as dominoes the little nice meaty red ones and some white ones the co-op seed got scab the reds whites and blues from our neighbors did not in exactly the same ground in the same year and potatoes uh, tend to not like a lot of lime in the soil so uh, we learned from that and from the old timers in our community who came 
It was neat because we had a, a neighbor come and plow our field, and he brought along with him Tom O'Keefe, who is a, a dairy and beef farmer. And, you know, you can just imagine the man standing there in his overalls with his arms folded and said, no, you don't want your drills running down there, boy. You want them running across so that, you know, like, uh, it, it was so wonderful. And, and that's, so one of my, uh, one of my strong, one of the things I've learned is that when it comes to heritage, okay, if we're going to talk about running the goat, the traditional dance from Harbor Deep on the Northern Peninsula, and this is Chris Brooks's question that I'm asking, what is, har what is running the goat? when it's no longer the dance of Harbor Deep. Mm -hmm. How do you keep heritage alive? Well, one of the wonderful things here is that there is a, a continuous base of knowledge of local agriculture here, which you can tap into. And the knowledge about growing food is one of the things that can be a living heritage. Yeah. It can evolve, it can change, it can benefit from new technology, but it can keep its roots in the past. Then maybe to, maybe that's a perfect thing to kind of finish off this interview with is this idea of the transmission of, of skills because I know mm -hmm. you've been doing uh, workshops where you're teaching people how to do some of this stuff. So tell me a little bit of what you've done in the past and what you're going to be doing coming up this spring. Well, uh, along with the gardening and the sea growing, and then as it evolved into becoming the the nonprofit neighborhood garden. I got excited about the results we were seeing with season extension using very simple techniques. So uh, five years ago, I offered uh, a workshop in the spring called Creating the Year-Round Garden. I had so many people, I had to have three sessions. The following year, four sessions. Last year, five sessions. In five years, we've had 300 participants. And what we do, and it's a really nice combination of talk and hands-on, we gather for a full day at the neighboring farmhouse. And using the farmhouse and the barn and the gardens, we talk about how you raise food year-round in Newfoundland. We plant seeds, and people go away grinning with their seeds in little pots that they've brought with them. We build a raised bed. I call it women with power tools, just to see how easy it is to do that. And everybody seems to go away really confident. And it's the confidence more than anything else that we're after. But the thing that I notice is that there's a tremendous amount of knowledge within our communities. And so more than anything else, these workshops become knowledge exchanges. And the people who say, oh, I've never, I, I kill things, I've got black <laughs> thumbs, you know. And then the person says, pats them on the back over lunch, says, you can do this. Say, you know, yeah, sometimes that happens. And I love that exchange of knowledge. So this year we've got sessions scheduled for April 22nd, which is full, the 23rd of April, the 29th and the 30th. And so anybody can go to our, our website, perfectlyperennial.ca, and sign up and uh, you get the full day experience, the home cooked lunch, and you go home with your seeds planted and ready to sprout. Well, I may have to join you at some point. You'd be welcome yeah. anytime. So to close off with then, you've given me some seeds to take home. I have. The oriental poppies from uh, Perfectly Perennial. So now what's, when, when do I plant these and what will happen uh, when I do? Close your eyes and throw. Uh, maybe <laughs> kind of maybe wait like, yeah. maybe wait till till the snow, <laughs> the is, snow gone, is gone. Yeah. But uh, but but do plant them somewhere where you'd like to have them because they are self-maintaining. Okay. And they're beautiful purple and pink. And then in in the fall, the 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 seed pods go brown, and you can actually shake the poppy seeds out into a jar 
almost fill a jar if you have a bed of them. And you can use the poppy seeds for replanting or in your kitchen. So we're, we're looking for plants like that, yeah. that are almost self-maintaining. And when can I do that? April, May? When's... As soon as the ground is warm. Excellent. Well, I'll, we'll have to come back in a year and I'll give you a report on okay. how my poppies are. Sounds good. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.